Good afternoon, this is Gary Kavanagh here on TRSI. I'm here today with my friend and colleague, Michael Dwyer. Today is Wednesday, the 14th of the 4th. Michael, how have you been since we last spoke? I've been very well, Gary. Thank you very much. Enjoying the lovely weather and the newfound freedoms that we all enjoy. Excellent. So, two major things we want to go through uh, today. One relates to kind of COVID, the mandatory hotel quarantines, the things we're seeing with AstraZeneca, all that sort of stuff. Less from the kind of medical side of things and more from the legal and social side of it and frankly the constitutional side of it, the rights side of it. The second thing that uh, I want to talk about, and I think we might start with this, is there was a new campaign launched today called the Anti-Conversion Therapy Coalition. And I just want to go into a little about what that group is, what it's trying to do. And also, we were talking before, I think it was last week or the week before, about the danger of political metaphor. This goes into a kind of a similar area, the danger of political naming. So what is this conversion therapy? If someone says, do you want to ban conversion therapy? I think most people in the public have a very set opinion of what conversion therapy is. So I suppose we, we may as well start off with that. So the Anti-Conversion Therapy Coalition seems to be, they say they're a coalition of young activists from Northern Ireland and the Republic of Ireland calling for a ban on conversion therapy throughout Ireland. Now, the first step they've taken in regards to this is to support a particular bill that was brought forward by a number of people, primary amongst them, Senator Fintan Warfield of Sinn Féin. And there are a good few people on it. So today we've had senators, TDs uh, come out in uh, favour of it. We've had Sinn Féin's youth party. We've had Fianna Fáil's youth party, Fine Gael's youth party, people for profit. I haven't seen it, but I assume the Social Democrats came out in favour of it as well. Because conversion therapy is just one of those things that respectable people cannot stand over. But when it came up, I thought I thought to myself that I had read the bill that they were talking about. And I thought there were issues with it. So I went up and I, I dragged the bill out again so I could have a little bit of a look at it. And it's um, it's very broad. It's way broader than I think people might consider the term conversion therapy to actually refer to. So I just want to go through some of the definitions on it. Because this is what it says conversion therapy is. Conversion therapy is any practice or treatment by any person that seeks to change, suppress, and or eliminate a person's sexual orientation, gender identity, and or gender expression. Now, I think for most people, they would see conversion therapy as treatment intended to change sexual orientation. Yeah, I think most people, when you hear this, <coughs> think of this as being, from what we've seen, say, for example, in the United States and maybe in other places, uh, those groups who try to pray the gay away, but don't just pray the gay away, but maybe use various psychotherapeutic approaches pharmaceutical approaches and sometimes psychological approaches that look a little bit more like well deprogramming but deprogramming that heads towards that the line between physical abuse and torture but anyway it's an approach which is taking a boy or a girl who is a, a gay uh, who identifies as, as being a gay or a lesbian person and say we're going to straighten you out and sorry i don't want to interrupt your flow here but has there been a sudden outbreak of gay conversion therapy in ireland recently because the, when i was reading this and hearing about it first thing i thought was this feels a little bit like a quest the answer to a question that nobody's asking no to my, my best of my knowledge there has not been an outbreak of this well let's let's put that another way there hasn't been an outbreak of 
conversion therapy as it would traditionally have been seen, which would be in relation to sexual orientation. However, under the definition of conversion therapy given in this, to change, suppress, and or eliminate gender identity and or gender expression. So we had the children's ombudsman was in the Irish Independent last week talking about the need to stand up to gender critical narratives. Sorry, Greg, can I ask you the question? Because off the top of my head, I don't know the answer to it. If you don't, that's okay too. What are the psychotherapeutic medical qualifications of the ombudsperson? Why, why, why would they be making statements like this about therapeutic approaches unless they were experts in the field? So my understanding is that the ombudsman for children, is a guy called... Um, Neil Mundoon, I think. So I believe he was a clinical psychologist. But not a gender... No, I, I don't think so. I think his speciality was actually childhood sexual abuse. Right. Presumably he knows something about it. I mean, to just wander into a highly contentious medical issue and make statements about it would be deeply irresponsible. I mean, it hasn't stopped us from doing it, but we're not people of standing. Absolutely. We have no standing. No, people expect no better from us. Thank God. Just on, on the that definition, you might think, okay, well, what's what's the issue about that? And it's, it's partially that it expands the traditional understanding of conversion therapy to be way beyond what most people would understand. So it gives you the opportunity to ask people where they stand on conversion therapy, knowing that those people think you are talking about something that is not entirely different, but is not what you are putting to them. But then beyond that, any practice or treatment, so treatment is specifically drawn out. It's not just medical uh, treatments. It's not just treatments offered by a professional. The Later on the legislation, it actually pulls out specific penalties of a professional does this, but it also specifically says that non-professionals can do this. So that lays some interesting groundwork. The idea of suppressing and, and or eliminating gender identity and or gender expression. Now it defines gender identity identity as a person's internal and individual experience of gender, including the personal sense of the body, which may include a freely chosen modification of bodily appearance and or functions by medical, surgical or other means, and other expressions of gender, including names, dress, speech and mannerisms. Gender expression refers to each person's manifestation of their gender identity and the one that is perceived by others. So I'll give you an immediate example of what this would cover. If a child, let's say a, a boy, told his parents that he was a girl and wanted to wear a dress and the parents said no. I think you could prosecute them under this. I don't think you'd even struggle to prosecute them under this. And would you like to know what the actual penalty for breaking this is, Michael? Go on. Up to six months in prison. Only. Now, of course, if you're a professional, then if you break this, well, no, you can spend up to 12 months in prison. Interesting other thing about this bill, Michael, it's got an extraterritoriality claim in it. Now, for those who aren't familiar with that, that is, there's a provision in this law that says if you are somewhere else in the world that would normally be outside Ireland's jurisdiction, you can be found guilty of breaking this act if you were an Irish citizen. That's unusual in Irish law. It's unusual in, in most laws, actually. So it is, it is also illegal under this bill, if it were to pass, for any healthcare professional to refer a child to another professional who might perform conversion therapy. Then again, as I said, what they define as conversion therapy is not what people would understand as conversion therapy. Under this, I think you could make a strong argument under the suppress line that any medical professional who dealt with a child and did not take an explicitly, I mean explicitly, affirmative model to that, which is to say if a child says they are a particular uh, gender, you agree and you facilitate the change. If you weren't to take that, I think this, you would absolutely breach this. I don't think it would even be a question. You would have suppressed... Um, 
their gender identity or gender expression because as they say gender identity can include their names their dress and how they speak and their mannerisms we know that one of the the hot button issue at the moment uh, in this area is the debate on whether or not the, the correct psychotherapeutic approach to a child presenting with gender dysphoria is affirmative or shall we say, other than affirmative. I don't want to say non-affirmative because that implies something else. In the United States, it's been the professional bodies have decided that uh, therapists have to adopt an affirmative approach at affirming affirming the child client's uh, sense of their gender identity uh, and going forward on that basis. Outside of the United States, that isn't necessarily the case. There are many therapists working in this area who say that this isn't the best way of serving the needs of the client, that you need to explore and examine other comorbidities, other psychological problems that may present themselves in addition to the dysphoria, whether it may be eating disorders, anorexia, self-harm, anxiety conditions, depression, whatever, that need to be dealt with before you get to the issue of the dysphoria to understand effectively what the best treatment is. Some studies suggest and some therapists believe that if you're looking at, particularly if you're looking in the area of what we now call sudden onset gender dysphoria, that the numbers vary, Gary, I mean, I know this, but we'll say substantial numbers, up to 80%, some people say less, that, that if you, if children go through their adolescence without engaging in chemical or surgical interventions, that once they get into their, say, the, their early 20s, that the, a significant majority of the children who presented with a gender dysphoria will actually re, will find that that dysphoria will have resolved itself into the, the individual identifying as being a gay uh, man or a lesbian woman rather than persisting with, their, uh, with, a, with a, a different gender identity. And therefore that it's not necessarily the correct or the most beneficial approach psychotherapeutically with a client who presents with a dysphoria to simply to 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 affirm that now are we are we saying that while on the face of this this is a this is apparently a, or will be perceived to be about one kind of conversion therapy but in reality whether it's deliberate or it's accidental this in a sense is going towards making the affirmative model the psychotherapeutic model not just the standard model but the only legal approach that could be used psychotherapeutically in Ireland to uh, children presenting with gender dysphoria? Here's just, just from reading it. It is an offence under this bill to suppress gender identity and or gender expression. Gender identity they define as including the personal sense of the body, which may include a freely chosen modification of bodily appearances and or functions by medical, surgical or other means. If I am a professional in this field and a child presents to me and says... I am a girl, I want to take cross-sex hormones. And I say, I don't feel that you're ready to go forward on that because we need time to review the situation and we need to you know, consult with medical experts because this is a profoundly life-changing experience. Have I suppressed their personal sense of the body and so breached this law? Yeah, or alternatively, say, take the example I, I gave where you have a therapist who believes that in four out of five cases what will actually happen over a period of adolescence is that the gender identity of the individual will actually change 
and they go forward therapeutically on the basis that the greater the, the likelihood is that they will change will that person be actually be involved in trying to could you say that the therapist is actually actively trying to change the gender identity of the person presenting to them for uh for intervention because what they're saying actually this is the identity you have today but it's my belief that there's a very good chance that in in seven years time this is not the identity that you will still have and I want to bring you to that point. And then after that, we'll see what we do. I think if this bill was enacted, as is written, now it's still, it's been kicked around in the Shannon for ages. It's still in one of, I think, the committees at the minute. If this bill were to be enacted as it is written, all of this stuff, you, people may hear what we're talking about and say, yeah, but it won't be used like that. And maybe it won't. Maybe none of those things will happen. Gary, you don't write laws that can be used in a certain way on the basis that nobody would do that. That's a... You, you just don't. Well, it is it is somewhat of an Irish speciality to do that. But you're right. You you don't write laws that can do these things and hope they won't happen. And if this was implemented as it is, it wouldn't even be a case of weaponizing it. It is a weapon already, and it's very clearly a weapon. And the fact that effectively the youth parties of every major political party, as in that has multiple TDs in the doll, signed on to this thing. Now, is it a case that they didn't realise this? That they didn't read it? Or is it the case they did and they think that's fine, that they want to see these things happen? One other thing I would point out by this, Michael, and this is this is a good one. Any practice uh, a person's sexual orientation, gender identity, and or gender expression, do you know what's missing from that? Sex or, gen- or, or sexual orientation? No, 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 no. Age. True. True, true. There is, again, uh, this is show. This is taking away the old notion of uh, age limits and consent. There is no mention in this bill of adulthood, of understanding. Even when you look at the way they describe medical um, interventions, if freely chosen, it says nothing about being able to contextualize or understand, it just says freely chosen. So there's no age restrictions on this, nor do I think you could pass this and have any age restrictions. At what point then, what does informed consent mean? Going back to the Tavistock judgment again, where the judgment of the British court regarding the use of puberty blockers was that under the age of 16, it was impossible for children to give any kind of informed consent because of an incapacity to understand the nature of the choice that they were making. Would this, as it were, cut the feet under, away from that kind of potential challenge? I think if you look at what this says about professionals, and then the definition of conversion therapy as treatment, but also any practice and the lack of age limits, I think there's a very real chance that this was put in as written. Any professional who sought to slow down or not even slow down ask people to go through a therapeutic pathway at a realistic or safe speed could be found to have breached this if that person did not agree to it there's also the um there's also the fact that that seeks to change so the very even bringing up the option could be deemed to be a breach of this regulation yeah so if you suggested something to a patient and they didn't like that you had suggested it I'm pretty sure they'd get you on this. Now, this, as I said, this is in committee. It'll probably be changed. But this is what they felt comfortable submitting. And this is what we have at the minute. And it is 
frankly dangerous. Just stepping back from the, the, shall we say, the details of the bill and the specifics of it for a moment, because I suspect we will be returning to this issue again and hopefully we'll be take the opportunity to talk to a number of people who support the bill to see what their understanding of it is and what the aims of it are and what the scope of the bill should be to get a sense uh, of what it's been trying to achieve and to be as fair as we possibly can be here because I'm sure the people involved are, are, are acting in good faith. But does it not strike you just in principle that this is a very odd piece of legislation in that it's, is the is Parliament the place to do this kind of thing? You know, we've often had in Ireland debates of whether or not certain kinds of things should be in the Constitution. Oh, that's, you shouldn't have that in the Constitution. It doesn't work. We should, that should be dealt with by legislation. This is a med, this is, this is a medical practice. This is a therapeutic problem. There is no sense in which you could say this is a settled issue in, of medical science. There are many, many reputable psychotherapists, endocrinologists, gender experts in Ireland and the United Kingdom and in Europe and across the world that d disagree vehemently about various approaches to the issue of gender dysphoria. And the science on it is evolving all the time. It's, we're really looking at a fairly new area of it medical and psychological endeavour. Is it really the place for Parliament to set laws about the best practice that should be occurring in a doctor's clinic or in a, in, in a psychotherapist's office? I mean, is this not just a very strange thing to be doing? On your point there, I was talking about how expansive the bill was, but just to make a, a final point on that, where they say if you are a professional, it will be, it's it's a harsher crime, could be up to 12 months in prison, and it's a crime for you to refer to any other person. And I think, is there a, par is there a part of the bill which says that also you would then refer to the government, you would be referred to the, your professional association? Yes, so the, if you are classed as a professional, the, the bill would require the government to inform your regulatory body that you have broken this law. Yeah. upon conviction. But here's what a professional is, Michael. And this I thought was actually quite interesting, because if you want to talk about the government uh, trying to effectively shape social and medical discourse, here's a professional. Care worker, counsellor, educator, family therapist, medical practitioner, pathologist, psychologist, psychotherapist, psychiatrist, social worker, and or youth worker. A professional is any person who is practicing in one of those or has a qualification which would allow them to practice as one of those. Now, in possession of an official qualification and or a warrant to practice as a care worker, as, as these things, so effectively, a retired psychologist who came out and said something could be found to have breached this because they are a professional. And it's not just treatments, and the bill specifies that in relation to professionals, money does not need to be exchanged. So any practice suppress this is this could be you could hit so much of just general conversation with this if you wanted to. Yeah. But anyway, as I said, the youth party of, of every uh, the youth wing of every major political party in the country just came out in favour of it on the same day, which would um, I'm going to default to assuming a lot of these people didn't read 
the text of the bill they are supporting, or if they read it, don't have the capability to actually analyse it. You know, Gary, once upon a time, I would have found that to be an incredible position. However, after our experience of the ILGA document and our previous experience of the National Women's Council general election document, I'm now perfectly willing to believe that politicians will sign up to support pretty well any old thing that comes through from the press office. And Neil Richmond is already on board. <laughs> Malcolm Byrne okay. from Fall. I'd say Malcolm Byrne just to balance it out. Well, give one for one. Both Neil and, and Malcolm are decent guys, and I'm sure that they are acting, at least at the beginning of their understanding of this process, in good faith. They want to achieve something which they think is positive and worthwhile. And if it's being understood at the beginning simply as a way of stopping people from engaging in abusive processes to try and get young gay people and turn turn them from their uh, sexual orientation into another sexual orientation, with it, I could, that's a perfectly understandable thing to do. But this, I, uh, this does not look like that to me. That does this bill... I go back to my earlier point, Gary. I mean, because I think we will return to this. I just find it odd that we should try and get into this kind of an area, into a very complex, difficult, not yet perfectly understood area of medicine, uh, neurology, psychotherapy, human sexuality, and decide we're going to legislate on how that's going to be practised. I don't think it's the function of the Parliament to, to do that. I think my, my, my main issue, I think, with this is there's a particular section of the NGO and activist grouping, which is very open to using empathy as a weapon in relation to this. And sort of this needs to be done in order to be kind or in order to do these things or to protect these children, despite a relative paucity of... Um, actual evidence for that and that has worked very effectively in many areas but like i know there are going to be politicians who are going to be moved by that argument in relation to this and i've seen it done with other terrible pieces of legislation and it's like well you know you know it, it was the kind thing to do you certainly don't produce something which is bizarrely both incredibly wide and incredibly specific at the same time. Yeah, it, it it's it's an interesting combination of both of those things. Usually, if a bill is wide, it's vague. But this is um this is in certain areas like laser pointed. Anyway, as as Michael said, I'm sure we will be coming back to this. We will see if that campaign has any um has any influence. Bags and bags of votes in Killinall for this. So, to move on from that, we've had a couple of weird things happen in relation to COVID recently. I think you'll say that's fair, Michael. We've had the AstraZeneca vaccine stoppage. Turns out the IMO was right to say, wait for Nyack to come back, because Nyack came back and said, nope, only people above a certain age. But I think it's in relation to mandatory hotel quarantines that things have gotten particularly fun. We've discovered we don't like mandatory hotel quarantines as a nation. Uh, so, for instance, sports people absolutely shouldn't be in mandatory hotel quarantine, Michael. Elite sport people. That would be wrong. The people who should be in mandatory hotel quarantine, I think, Michael, from having looked at how the government is acting, is um, per people. (laughs) 
I thought there was a. The, do you hear the comment of the, the judge? It, was, it sounded very much like a, a warning, telling that anybody going to the court should be aware that there would be very significant costs potentially involved, and if they were to lose the case. Yeah, so that was um, Justice Brian O'Murr came out today and said if because people are bringing challenges against the mandatory hotel quarantine uh yeah what was he yeah i think you're right very significant costs if they can't get legal aid and if they fail and then i think he said that it was important that this message get to the people or something like that it's important this message get out and i think the the problem there is i read that in text and it's the sort of thing you really want to see someone when they're saying because the difference in tone is the difference between an honest you should know this and yeah it's the difference between somebody with a genuine concern saying lads listen if you take this case and you can't get legal aid and you lose it you could be facing a fuckload of money you have to shell out or it could be i just want you to understand you come here you lose it you don't have legal aid you're going to be paying through the nose could be a, a friendly a friendly piece of advice or it could be something very close to a threat i wouldn't i want the trend i have noticed in relation to mandatory hotel quarantine is that the people who can afford to get the initial legal advice and bring cases they seem to be getting released like they're just hot rocks just gone just allowed leave without issue almost almost gary as if and i'm not saying it is because i'm sure it's not but it's almost as if there was a belief in the government that if this was to go to court that the whole shit and shebang would be discovered to be unconstitutional and rather than get to a situation where the courts actually have to be asked a question that they give an answer to it's much handier oh just let them out we'll think of an we can think of a reason to let them out and it's much handier than actually going all the way to the court and finding the whole thing starts to collapse around us. Because you never know. We may start to discover there are all sorts of things that the government has done in the process of what was described by a study done in Oxford as the most restrictive lockdown in the world. So maybe it's best just to let them out rather than let those pesky judges come to an actual conclusion. One uh, lawyer with some expertise in the constitution commented during the week that it has been his opinion that a lot of this legislation or the regulation is unconstitutional simply because he said it can be either a regulation can be discriminatory or it can be proportionate but it can't be both and if you're trying to if you're if you're doing both well then it's going to be unconstitutional well there is another reason why they might be so happy to get people out of these hotels michael yeah I'll give you a headline from the Irish Examiner. Go on. Booking system for hotel quarantine paused. Website shows <laughs> no rooms available. <laughs> oh, we can't even run this. Oh, God. So Stephen Donnelly said the Department of Health has paused the system due to the scaling up of the number of countries on the Category 2 list. And the website now says there's no available rooms for the bookings. Um, and then the government said that they were urging airlines to not allow those who did not have reservations onto planes flying back to Ireland. And that seems a bit odd. Are we now relying on foreign airlines to enforce Irish laws? Well, if we are, I think we know exactly which particular creek we are up and how many paddles we have. That's just a nonsense. Well, Gary, do you not get the impression at the moment that we 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 get 
there are certain stories coming out that you're looking at them and you think, if are we are we really there? That we have said before when we're talking about lots, you know, people making constitutional claims about things. Well, you know what, the Irish Constitution has many many get out clauses in these situations for the, the common good, for public health, for public order, all sorts of things, that if a judge wants to find a regulation to be constitutional, that there's plenty of space for the court so to do. However, I'm beginning to wonder if maybe we over-egged that, because, well, two things. First of all, we have seen uh, constitutional challenges to various regulations in countries all around Europe and the world knocking out various restrictions. Now, just because one country's constitutional court finds something to be unconstitutional doesn't obviously mean that the Irish court would necessarily so find. But there usually is a certain, there's a very often a certain commonality in the, in the kinds of reasoning you find at this level, constitutional courts. But there was a story which uh, was, uh, which we saw uh, today, which was reported, it was all over the, the all of Gaff, but the, the headline here from Virgin News, which says, the Irish state has clarified to the High Court that it is an offence under the public health regulations for a person to leave their home for mass other than for weddings and funerals. Now, Gary, that's an extraordinary thing to say. The first thing that comes to mind there is... Stephen Donnelly said those um, those restrictions were not penal provisions. And when he was questioned upon it, I think by Michael McNamara and um, Matty, Matty McGrath had, had also asked him, he simply said in a sort of contemptuous or perhaps more exactly imperious way, I signed them myself, I know what's in them. Ah. And the last time I heard Matty McGrath, Carol Nolan, Michael McNamara, maybe a couple of the other rural independents, we're all calling on Stephen Donnelly to correct the record because yes. he had either misled the doll, Michael. But I, I like to think, Michael, that we can trust politicians when they say things in the doll. And Stephen Donnelly said he knew what was in those regulations because he just signed them. So on that basis, Stephen Donnelly lied to the doll. Oh, it's a big word. It is, though. But I mean, he said, Michael, are we to assume that the Minister for Health does not have the base competency to read the legislation? He is signing. Well, I would have thought that was a safer assumption, yes. I mean, Gary, we, we mentioned before in this that when Heather Humphreys was asked to comment on the le on, on legislation by Neve Smith, that she said, well, she was just the minister and it wasn't her job to know what the legislation said. That was up for the, that was up to the courts. When the courts were asked their opinion on a different issue, the, the court's response was, well, it's not up to us to know what the law is. You better ask the state. And they did ask the state, and the state has clarified to the High Court that it is on an offence under public health regulations for a person to leave their home for a mass. Now, Gary, I'm going to go out on a... I'm a heavy man on a thin branch. I suspect there may be constitutional problems with the idea of the state making it an offence for me to leave my home with the intention of going to mass. Ah, you people and your constitutional niceties. Like, I know, I know me in the constitutional niceties. It's the old Fianna Fáler in me, Gary. It's the dev constitution rising up in me. But, but sorry, seriously, though, is that not a fucking bizarre statement? Is that not really weird? It is an offence to leave your home f 
for mass not to go to mass not to succeed but rather is is this saying that there is a, like a new crime which is what was he called? he was charged with conspiracy to attend mass incitement to attend mass i i this is this is looking glass stuff here now and i would but this goes back to shall we say again if we reel it back from the details to a more fundamental question a, a, a question which has been asked by a number of people this week what is the point of having a constitution and constitutional protections if there's nobody left in the state willing to vindicate those protections declan ganley and god bless him has taken a, a has taken a, a case uh about uh, the right to attend religious services and whether or not it's constitutional to stop people doing so but declan ganley is i suspect a wealthier man than you or i gary is that what it's left is that where we're left now that constitutional protections exist only for those people who can afford to take course take a case to the supreme court and after that it's just a decoration for the wall it's just something we like to look at we have a constitution yes where are we we don't like to use it too much in case we wear it out but we have it somewhere i mean the irish constitution has numerous get-arounds and workarounds and it's a very irish document it's very much a these are the rules but you'd be amazed how much scope we have to get around them if we can come up with a good enough excuse in relation to something like this i think that is a, a key point we have a judge reminding people let's assume in good faith that he is warning them that if you yeah. lose this there are a high court case is not cheap not against the state not against anyone and that's going to hurt we have a situation now where if you feel that the government is breaching your rights or the government is failing in its obligations under the constitution, as in is acting flagrantly against it, you basically can't do anything about it unless you have a very high level of income. Just on the legal side of things, what are you going to do about it? Or, alternatively, you can be someone who has absolutely no money. That actually works quite well as well. We have now reached a point with these regulations that the legality of them is, is, is highly correct. The whole quarantine issue has made a nonsense of it. It's plain and obvious. Well, it's, I don't know if it is. It seems to me that it's plain and obvious that the la they just didn't want to go ahead with these court cases because they were terrified that there would be a finding and that that finding would potentially undermine a whole slew of the regulations or at least cast doubt on the constitutionality of a whole slew of the regulations. Behaviour of the government towards this is offensive to the idea of the rule of law. And I will go out on a, a you know, perhaps an unpopular position here and say I don't think any of the people who brought challenges should have been released. And I don't think athletes should have to avoid mandatory hotel quarantine. And that's not because I think mandatory hotel quarantine works. What I think is, is that if it's the law, it is the law and it should be applied to everyone. If it's not the law, then stop. But don't kind of say it's the law and then out of fear of a challenge, just start releasing people who prove they have either the connections or the resources to start one of these challenges, mm -hmm. and then start saying, "Well, of course, these um, you know elite sports people won't have to be quarantined for reasons not terribly good reasons." But look, it's the law, or it's not the law. If it's the law, it is the law for a particular reason, which is now just being made a fucking mockery of. And as I said, I don't even think this will work. They keep doing this. This has just been a year of half-assing things and then Swiss cheesing their own regulations. 
and telling people the things that are against the law are not against the law and things that were not against the law are against the law. It's also a, yeah, another example of, I think, in, in my opinion anyway, of politicians doing things for the most typical reason that politicians ever do anything. It's their sense they have to do something. Politicians are terrified that people would look and say, well, what are you doing? And they go, well, not really anything we can, what we can do anymore. We've done what we think is going to be effective. Anything extra wouldn't really not achieve that much, but the costs would be excessive. There might be a, a small benefit, but actually you know, it, it wouldn't, it would, it, that benefit would not be commensurate with the, the costs that we would incur. Um, so we're not doing anything. You can't do that. There's artists, they think they can't do that. So they're always doing something. I saw um, a clarification today, and it seems to be true. If it's wrong, well, then I'm wrong, and I, I apologize to the listeners for this. But you know, we, we were told that it was now possible, you, you, can now, you can now meet people from outside your house outdoors. There was a clarification issued by somebody. Uh, I can't remember who, and this is why I'm intending say that. Yeah, that was but not in your garden. In other words, not in your since your garden is part of your home, it couldn't be in your garden. That seems to me again to be an example. Doing something for the sake of doing. It's like you can have two people who are completely vaccinated in a room that are from different households, but you can't have three. Well, why? Well, we don't really know why, but we felt we had to put a number on it because then you know that would. It looks like we have a plan. It looks like we have a schemata and we're doing things to the plan. You know that line in Yes Minister where somebody says, should I give a number? And the producer says, oh, yes. And nobody ever understands what the numbers are and they certainly don't remember them. But it gives a sense of authority to the thing that you know what you're talking about. And I think a lot of this stuff is that sense. It, it just gives a sense that there is a plan because there, there are specific numbers and specific dates, specific targets and quantities. And it gives us a sense that there is actually a plan when in fact there isn't a fucking plan at all. All there is is just a lot of architecture to make it look like a plan. This is a Potemkin plan. It's not a real plan. I have been whinging about the fact that we need to be talking about how we exit from the from the lockdown and what that process is going to look like all we all we, we still haven't had anything like the color of that and i really think that's going to be increasingly a political problem because people's expectations are getting higher and now we're talking about nefet or saying well there could be a fourth wave and some people are quoting them and saying there's a likelihood of it there's a probability of it and others are saying no that's not what they're saying what they're saying is that it could be there may not be but there could be but that Again, policy is going to be based on that 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 policy. And the quote of the day was that this was going to be done with an abundance of caution. But that abundance of caution has to be costed, Gary. Somebody has to be able to say, okay, this abundance of caution is going to cost this. It's going to cost this in, 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 in growth terms, this in jobs terms, this in public health terms, because public health is not just... COVID. Look at the, the AstraZeneca thing. They came out and said that they're going to stop giving that to uh, people below a certain age. Now, yeah. there's going to be a number of problems with that. The first, we are going to, we're going to rapidly develop a stockpile of AstraZeneca. Very, very yeah, quickly. Yeah, yeah. Uh, which we will, God knows what to do with. They then 
came out and said, well, here are some rough facts about it, and here's the rough risk profiles at a press conference. If you go onto the Department of Health website, and you kind of go looking around for it, you're going to be looking a while, Michael, to find anything about why this has happened. So if I'm a member of the public, how the fuck do I know why this has happened? Or what the risk profiles are? Or what they actually mean when they say abundance of caution? Or what any of this actually means? In practical, yeah. What, what the yeah. actual evidence base is. And then, even at that press conference, when they were asked about the level of, would this cause a high level of disruption? The answer was, I certainly hope not. I certainly hope not. Don't fundamentally alter major programs and your own research shows that you are twice as likely, even in the young age category, the 20 to 34 age category, twice as likely to die of COVID-19 as to develop a blood clotting issue from the AstraZeneca vaccine. Not to die of a blood clotting issue, to get a blood clotting issue. And we should remember the likelihood of somebody dying in that age court is infinitesimally small. If you catch COVID, the likely of you, likelihood of you developing uh, clotting is massively bigger than the likelihood of developing clotting if you take AstraZeneca. The likelihood of you clotting if you take the contraceptive pill is massively bigger. The likelihood of you developing clotting if you take a long-haul aircraft Air, air flight is massively bigger. But the thing is, Gary, none of the science has changed. You're a woman and you're taking the contraceptive pill. Weirdly enough, a risk that people in general don't talk about. There is not a, not a substantial, not incredibly high, but a higher risk of developing a blood clot than taking this vaccine. Much higher. The thing is, Gary, none of the science regarding this has changed in the last few weeks as regards the risk profile. But we have seen country after country in Europe go through this and stop and go back and look at it and then go back and look at it and go back. And the EMA, to be fair to the EMA, the EMA's position has been the same on the way. Yes, there is a very small risk of of clotting occurring. We are aware of this. We are now we're looking at how we can mitigate that. We're looking at treatment and all that. But the risk that catching COVID presents and the risk that presents to your health is so much more significant the, and the likelihood is so much greater that this is, you should, this is a, this is a safe thing to take. It's like the likelihood, for example, we, we talked about the issues in, in, other, uh, in other vaccines regarding the possibility of anaphylaxis. We know if the, the likelihood of developing anaphylaxis after, for example, taking penicillin is far higher than the likelihood that you would uh, then that you would have of uh, developing a blood clot after taking the AstraZeneca vaccine. If you if you actually go into the HSE website and you dig around and you go into the you know the the vaccination and then the what to do if you had an AstraZeneca appointment and it was cancelled and you read what they're saying about it, the decision makes even less sense. The the HSE's own estimate is. Four people, four to ten people in every million who get the AstraZeneca vaccine may have an issue with blood clots. It may cause death in one person in one million. Yeah. I, I think it, it ends by saying the benefits of getting the AstraZeneca vaccine continue to outweigh the risks. Yeah. Which is perfectly accurate. 
but we've just stopped giving it to people. There's another, there is a context which is even more problematic here, Gary, to what's going on with the AstraZeneca. Now, we've cancelled our AstraZeneca clinics because of the concerns now, and we're going to read you get more looking at what's happening. But the next batch of vaccines that's used to come in here that's going to be part of our ramping up of our vaccination programme are the Johnson & Johnson vaccines. And as you know, right now, the, the FDA in the United States has suspended the distribution of the Johnson & Johnson vaccines because of concerns regarding clotting. Now, if we were going, if, if the position was going to be, well, you're going to slow down on the vaccine with AstraZeneca, but it's okay because we have massive supplies coming in of Johnson & Johnson. And Johnson & Johnson has the same risk profile, but actually has less, is less effective, even though it's a single shot. It's a less effective vaccine than AstraZeneca, which is what the... Uh, the trials suggest. Well, what what are we going to do then? What is the state of our vaccination program going to be? The the reports now are saying that we are now looking mirabile dictu at doing what the Brits did from the beginning and take the Pfizer vaccine instead of doing the double vaccine on it, expand the use of a single vaccine of Pfizer and see uh, and use that uh, and then see if we can get the. Uh, supply sorted out and we have other people saying the time has come to get down on our knees, go to Moscow and say, please, please, sir, can we have some of your nice vaccines that we I, that we didn't, that we said we didn't need before? Right now, our vaccine rollout is in shit. And it is the only way we are getting out of this. Can we stop, please, having discussions about zero COVID and living with COVID management. The only way out of this pandemic for us now is a large scale effective rollout of vaccinations and getting the large, a large, the large, a very large proportion of the, of the population vaccinated. And I don't know how. How is this not going to affect it, Gary? How is this not going to knock us back? Well, AstraZeneca is currently 22% of all vaccines administered. So this sort of, I hope it won't do that. It, it's the same way when they come out and say that Ireland is not an outlier when you look at our lockdown. And then you actually look at the lockdown and say, we are a spectacular outlier in the length and relative severity of it. And also our failure to ramp up. And, you know, at this stage, we have to recognise it's not simply... Well, if it is a question of, of supply, then there's something going wrong with the way we're, our, our supply is being delivered at, at a European level. Because I don't know if you're looking at the Danish figures, Gary. There's a remarkable example of how ramping up speed and just getting bigger numbers day by day, the, it showed the the rollout in Denmark on two different dates. And on the basis of the rollout a few weeks ago, the projected date for the vaccination of the majority of the, the adult population, or 70%, whatever it was, the, the, the magic number, was into was the, I think the 30th of July. A couple of days ago, they had their biggest day ever. And that date had been brought back to the 16th of June. Now in the context of the pandemic and the experience that people are having and the experience that people are living now after having a year of it, that's a fantastic change. That you're talking like a six week rollback just by continually ramping up. And we're not doing that. We're now into April. January, February, March have all gone by. We're halfway through April. We're still not in a position where we're seeing day by day increasing numbers of vaccinations occurring to ramp up, to get to the point where we can start to seriously talk about coming out of this. 
It's just not happening. And it's happening in other countries. We are dropping, rather than going up, we're dropping down. Even the scale, even in, 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 the, in the tables in the EU, we're dropping down. Uh, it's just not good enough to say, oh, well, I, uh, I hope that won't happen. The funny thing, the thing I, I find particularly funny about this is that when you look at some of the choices that have been made regarding vaccines and things like that, and the willingness to handle risk, the precautionary principle is going to kill thousands of people in Europe this year, if not more. Just straight out kill them, because governments are not willing to accept like the AZ vaccine, twice as likely to die of COVID-19 as develop a clot in the youngest age categories. When you're up at the older age categories, you're something like 85 times more likely to die than to develop a blood clot. The governments will say that's not an acceptable risk. And therefore they will stop the administration of something which will save people's lives, which will, pretty much by definition, kill people. It would have to. Yeah. It would make no sense if it didn't. Because... Yes. For all this, oh, there's a massive level of supply constraints. We're going to take away this thing, which is a major part of that, and there will be no change. That doesn't make sense. That makes absolute, it cannot be correct. But also in that, what I think is interesting is, it's not a case that they go, there is a certain risk from this. Decide if you are willing to take that risk. It is, there is a certain level of risk to this, we have decided you can't. I see a lot of my friends saying, listen, if this is the case, you're not going to give it. For God's sake, just open a register. Put a register online and anybody who is willing to take the AstraZeneca vaccine should be allowed that then just to sign up and go and get the damn thing. And if you want, you can put age restrictions on it, limited to only over people over 50 or whatever. But if people are willing to make that choice, if we're looking at, okay, when we're talking statistics like this, Gary, it kind of becomes meaningless. One person in a million, right? We're saying there's a chance that one person in a million will die. Now, that doesn't necessarily mean actually that anybody in Ireland would actually die. It might happen. It might not. It could be three people. It could be five people. It could be none. But what we know is that the risk is very, very low. But if we want to put it in the crudest possible terms, crude statistics, all we need are three people to die or four people to die of COVID who would not have otherwise died because they would have been vaccinated. And we will now have gone on the other side of the balance of risk. If we, and purely gross, I mean, that's not a, that's a horrible way of looking at it in in a way I, I recognize that. But if you're just looking at simply from a numbers term, four people die because they didn't get vaccinated. We now have more people dead because we wouldn't get people vaccinated than even if the risks had had eventuated in the distribution of AstraZeneca. Here's here's the the other thing. Ireland has had 241,000 COVID cases, Michael. So let's say a quarter of a million, just to be fair. In that, we have had 4,800 deaths. That is, um, shall we say, slightly more than four per million. It's about 19,000 per million. That seems like a substantial difference in risk. Now, for the stats people out there, obviously it's not quite the same because that's assuming that there's a one-for-one assumption that everybody will become infected with COVID. That would otherwise be infected. But yeah, there's a massive difference 
in the risk profile. But I have no doubt that there will be large numbers of people now who will be deeply reluctant to be vaccinated with COVID. We're hearing a lot of stuff that it's about vaccines, and I think some of it is political, some of it is because AstraZeneca is outside the EU and therefore quite easy to scapegoat. But I don't think that. I think at the core of this is actually just the way certain people think about risk and the the level of acceptable risk that can be caused by your actions versus the level of acceptable risk that just happens. So like, yeah, 4,000 people die, but that's not your fault. Four people die because of a decision you made. That's your fault. doesn't matter if you saved lives. Like, you did that. We can show you did that. It's just terribly, terribly unserious. Like things like you pull a major component of your, your health program and you don't know what the impact is going to be. The Ronan Glynn said, well, we've got to give the HSE a couple of days to work out what the impact will be. Why wouldn't you do that before you did it? NIAC was considering this. There was time for the HSE to do that. But there's just this sort of a serious organization would have done that. Serious governments would have done things the Irish government hasn't. They're just not serious people engaged in a serious endeavour. They're just not. It's the way that we do politics and it's the way we do media here. And the, if, you're, if, you're the, if, you're, if you're in this government, you know for a certain fact. Every day we will hear the numbers of, the, the numbers of people who have died from COVID, right? And we know, they know at this stage, they have learned the lesson. Now, maybe that will change, but... They are not being held responsible for any of those deaths. Nobody is saying, nobody's putting up a picture of the people who have died in the newspaper and saying, killed by Micheál Martin, right? It's not a big story. None, not, have you heard any stories about any of the people who've died? The, almost 5,000 people who've died. How many of those stories have been told? How many of those stories have been poured over or dis- discussed in the newspapers? However, one person dies of a blood clot in two weeks' time from AstraZeneca, it will be a huge story. And it will be a cost. It will be a political cost. And that's because that's the, it will be reported like that and it will be experienced politically like that. And I think that's the, the metric they're using. Maybe they're wrong. Maybe I'm wrong. But I think that's what they're for. I think that politically, and it's a horrible thing to think that this is the way people might make these decisions, there is no cost for a few more people dying of COVID. Because people are dying of COVID. That's what happens in a pandemic. People die of COVID. But if you license AstraZeneca and you give it out and somebody dies of that, then it's your fault. Yeah, at the same time, at the same time politically, we're now up to about 66% of the country thinking that the government is doing a bad job in handling the vaccine rollout. So for all of the sort of, oh, well, politically, it's very hard to do these things, I think that might be true in the general course of events. We're not in the general course of events now, though. We're in a very specific time period where I think things that wouldn't have flown will fly. Okay, we're, dealing, we're dealing with a government which is delusional. It was all over the gaff, was it yesterday or the day before, that Michal Martin is apparently grumbling and numbling about the fact that he hasn't seen, quote, his vaccination bounce. Now, by what that, what, by that, what he means, listeners, is a bounce in the polls on the back of the vaccination program. 
we're vaccinating all these people. Why hasn't my numbers in the polls gone up? Now, is, anybody who wasn't living in a delusional reality would, if Michal said, where's my vaccination bounce, would respond, Michal, where's my vaccination? Get me a vaccination, I'll give you a bounce. But he apparently is genuinely, where's my vaccination bounce? He doesn't seem to understand. It's a fucking shit show. And that's why there's no bounce. Because there's no... I'm sure the listeners out there have been enjoying, like we all have, the pictures of all those people in London sitting at, at, at tables in streets, drinking pints of beer, wassailing and, with their friends and dancing and singing and getting their hair cut, possibly all at the same time. And what we've been told, Gary, we've been told that, well, an abundance of caution, we we have we think that if we give another good six weeks to this, we will be able to control and mitigate the spread of the virus. We have to think about the fourth wave. That's what we're being told. In London, they're drinking beer and getting their hair cut. Why? Because they had a vaccination program which worked. In the north, they haven't started drinking yet. But by God, when they start drinking, who's going to stop them crossing the road from Lifford and, and going to Strabane and getting oceans? I certainly... Mean, we're not blind. We see what's happening in other places. And yet our politicians are plaintively looking for our gratitude. Why are we not why are we not grateful to them for the fine job they've been doing? So I say to you guys, that what you're saying may be true and accurate and other, but that's not when you're dealing with a political class, which has become delusional. I do think it is one thing actually which quite amuses me is in relation to the fear of doing something wrong. The state is propping up nearly every media organisation in the country at the minute. They could shoot children on the fucking street and it would be reported positively if they thought there was a threat to that funding. And that's no slur against them. Everyone has standards until their survival is at risk. But the higher the risk to your survival, the more things you're going to suddenly be willing to do that you just didn't want to do. And for a lot of the media, government funding is now an existential issue. Yeah. It just, it just, it just seems like a, like a government with some drive here could do anything they wanted. Because the media will just okay anything. And instead we just have this muddle of confused people. It's like an old folks home at dementia hour. If we had a Peron, this would be a good time to be there. If we had somebody with a bit of ambition and a bit of desire to bloody well take over the gaff and run it. <laughs> we will be back on Friday, as per normal. All the best. Oh, boy. oh actually, as a little later aside, uh, just before we go, in relation to the ILG matter, turns out uh, upon investigation that the ILG, one of its founders, was Ian Dunn, the co-founder of the Pedophile Information Exchange. So that was funny. All the best.